Welcome to Cointelegraph's Crypto Trading Secrets Podcast. We're going to be in a recessionary bear market. I made that mistake back in the day when I was trading with cannabis. Bitcoin's mining reward in half. Only a couple people make money day trading. Let's dive into that. This episode is sponsored by Web3 Antivirus. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to Crypto Trading Secrets presented by Cointelegraph. Today we have Nicholas Merton, a trader and well-known content creator in the crypto space. Nicholas runs Datadash, a sizable crypto-focused YouTube channel. The interview in this episode was recorded on January 9, 2023. All right, without further ado, here's Nicholas Merton. Hey Nicholas, how's it going? Good man, it's nice to see you BJ, how you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. It's been a it's been a while since we've chatted, um, but it's it's always good to chat with you. Yeah, man. And it's a good time to do it as well. It seems like the entire space has gone silent. And when there's silence, there's building and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So the show usually aims to have three segments. The first one is called Finding the Bottom. Basically, I just like to ask guests what they think about Bitcoin's price and where it might be amid the bear market and uh, when they think the asset might find a bottom. So what's your opinion on Bitcoin's price lately? Yeah, I think that right now, uh, you know, we've been going through what can only be seen as kind of a period of consolidation. I like to view things from a macro view. It's just the way that I've traded mainly over the last 11 years. And I think crypto is going through, again, this period of massive restructuring that I think is going to be overall good for the space long term. But I think people quite underestimate just how long this could really play out. Um, the damage that was done by, you know, companies like FTX and Celsius. Three Arrows Capital, the whole fiasco with Luna, is really going to leave a irreversible scar on the industry. And I think we need to understand not only how that contagion continues to play out, but that it's playing out in this little micro space within crypto. And when we really step out into the macro perspective, big picture view, uh, we really start to see, you know, with inflation, global supply chain issues, that crypto is not going to be the leading asset class for some time. And I say that as someone who got into crypto around 2016, 2017, who really rode the wave of the last decade in stocks and crypto. Uh, I think we need to understand that the end of that secular bull market, where times were good, quantitative easing was fresh, there's lots of money being injected in the economy, propping up asset valuations. I think those times are unfortunately over. And uh, we need to prepare for a cold winter, where eventually we can start to look for some signs on bottoming. Gotcha. So... Do you have any data or opinions on Bitcoin's price action over the last year and how that might, might line up with the timeline of how previous Bitcoin bear markets played out? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first observations building into my, my previous point a little bit is that when we take a look at previous cycle corrections, you're easily looking at around, I think, anywhere from an 80% plus correction. And the important thing to understand is that when you go from, say, an 80% correction 85% correction to a 90% correction from top to bottom. It's a huge difference. Uh, people really start to, to negate that and they think, oh, you know, I'm just dollar cost average, I'm buying the dip. These differences become incrementally large when you're measuring from top to bottom. Now, so far, if I remember correctly, when I looked at it, Bitcoin is corrected, or at least the broader crypto market cap has roughly corrected about 75%. 
And while that's definitely a good chunk, we've removed probably a lot of the euphoric bubble valuation that was persistent in 2021. Uh, we've cleared through a lot of the you know overvalued projects and scams and all the stuff that just unfortunately persisted over the last few years and persists during bull markets. But we've still got, I think, a ways to go before valuations get attractive for institutional investors or that next wave of buyers. I think one really good example, again, to, to consider here is, as you mentioned, those traditional timeframes of what we would originally label as a Bitcoin bear market, right? Usually it takes about a year, at least from the past two ones, which are the most mature bear markets as Bitcoin became more of a liquid uh, market for traders and actually developed a serious valuation that took, was noteworthy. Uh, during these bear markets, it usually lasted about a year. I think this time around, we need to be prepared that we're not just going to be in a typical crypto bear market. We're going to be in a recessionary bear market. So this is one where crypto is not only going through its biggest transformation since the collapse of Mt. Gox or Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, which was one of the biggest Bitcoin exchanges back in 2014, did the overwhelming majority of volume. But on top of that, we've got all these recessionary pressures. I think right now it's almost just kind of hanging in the air. Everyone is anticipating to some degree that we're going to have pretty substantial recession. Um, that again, as the Fed is continuing to hike, something will eventually break, something will lower valuations. And what is another 20% dip, 30% dip in equity valuations in the US stock market? What's that going to do to Bitcoin and crypto? Uh, some would say that we've we've kind of gone to the majority of the correction and maybe crypto led the pack as the more risk, risk on asset. And I would completely agree again, as we talked about earlier, I think the majority of that correction has come through but I think we're we're being a bit close-minded if we don't think we can press down to, say, 12500 which would be the typical bear market correction for crypto. And on top of that, be open to the idea that we might even go down to that five-figure number of 10000 That's at least what I'm watching. Uh, again, it's there's no guarantee that we're going to hit those levels. And I wouldn't say you have to wait around for that. But for me personally, again, I, I'm just remaining patient here on where we go into the next couple of years. Yeah, that makes sense. So about every four years, Bitcoin goes through a halving event, which cuts Bitcoin's mining reward in half, meaning fewer new Bitcoin entering into circulation. The next halving is expected to occur in 2024. What are your thoughts on how halvings might have affected Bitcoin's price in the past and how they might affect its price going forward? Yeah, That's actually a really good point. And I think I can offer a pretty unique perspective on this because I think most people see the halving event as it was over the last decade from Bitcoin's origin as this really big catalyst that would kind of start to immediately, once it took effect, reduce the amount of Bitcoin being mined per block and therefore immediately implement a supply shock that really could only be felt when it was implemented. And after that, you tended to see, you know, a year out from those halving events that Bitcoin would really make new record highs or was pressing back up to the previous bull market highs going even further afterwards. I think that the having event each and every time has less and less of an effect on Bitcoin. And I think that a lot of people are going to be disappointed in the coming four years, not so much with Bitcoin's price action. Bitcoin can maybe do well during that period of time, but how much of a lacking effect thereof the having event has on Bitcoin. Because as you're going through these, these block reward uh, halvings, essentially, I'm just using it as a mental model here, right? Even though these aren't the exact numbers. Let's say, for example, you had you know, the Bitcoin block reward being 10 Bitcoin. Then you go to five Bitcoins, pretty big reduction. 
But if you go from the next block having from five Bitcoin per block to 2.5 BTC, there's a very big difference between those two halving events. One of them is a reduction of five Bitcoin per block, and the other one is a reduction of 2.5. Now, percentage-wise from each halving event, yes, you're cutting it in half, right? That's why it's called the halving. But the key thing here to understand is that Bitcoin is a finite asset, 21 million coins. So when you start going down the list of these halving events, they become growingly weak in the grand scheme of things. What I care more about is not the immediate potential minor sell pressure from people who are mining Bitcoin on each block. I'm starting to just worry about whether or not the existing holders are selling more than new market participants and buyers. And that's just a simple question of supply and demand and considering the market flow in either direction. Um, and I have a feeling... You know, if we go into an extended period, a decade of inflation like we did in the 70s, if the Fed starts to pivot too early or they haven't properly reduced the balance sheet that they've doubled in size since the pandemic in 2020, I, I think we're going to have a painful period of either sideways price action or lowering prices in Bitcoin and crypto. So that's, that's what I'm a little bit worried about here. I think, again, the having of it isn't going to be able to be that saving grace as it used to be in crypto. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So do you have any opinions on when or where you think Bitcoin's price might form a bottom? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm looking really as as early as quarter one to quarter two of this year, potentially. I I do lean in a, a camp of investors that really kind of sees this playing out a little bit longer than people may you know intend for. I, I kind of go through like I have a ton of different investors and traders I, I listen to and also people I'm just aware of. And I, I try to kind of figure out where that timeline is for them. And it's somewhere probably in 2023. But that is also, as with most bear markets, likely going to come with a long-term accumulation channel. So really, I think you're going to have, you know, later on in, in Q2, Q3, I would say more realistically, you're going to have the formulation of that low. Um, I think all of the skeletons in the closet, so to speak, within the crypto industry, you know, companies that were affected by the fallout of Luna, there be it Celsius, FTX, and maybe even other exchanges we just don't know about. Um, I think all those companies are going to have to come out uh, if they haven't already. Uh, the damage will have been done on those. And you're going to have all those scrappers and people who, again, are just going to consolidate with any kind of correction in equity markets. And I think, again, that when you really get to one of those big psychological numbers like 10,000, that's going to get investors really interested. Um, you know, I think in, in broader terms, you could see crypto market cap, you know, we're coming from around a high of $69,000. That's a very solid percentage decline from top to bottom. And it's the kind of stuff that happens during these blow off tops. It would be very much in line with traditional bear markets, uh, both uh, not only in the percentage decline, but a little bit longer than the typical crypto bear market. And I think, again, as we talked about earlier, we got to accept that it's going to take a little bit longer. I, I'm usually someone, I, I don't hope for anyone who's listening, I hope they don't take me as to being some kind of pessimist or, or being overtly negative or bearish. I've, like I said, invested in the broader crypto market for the last decade. But I think it's just being realistic about how this time is a little bit different than previous bear markets. You know, we, we didn't have the kind of inflationary approaches we had. 
And also we don't have that having as you you were referencing. And I think that's a really honestly good point to bring up, BJ. Like people don't think about how the having is not going to have that same effect. So you don't have QE, you don't have the having a, events supporting Bitcoin as much as these two. And you got a lot of macro concerns, liquidations and overvalued uh, assets across the board. The housing market, you know, went through major bubbles. So all these things come into play when it comes to the monetary flows of supply and demand for crypto assets that in the end determine price. Gotcha. And you kind of hit on this at, at points, but I just wanted to see, I was just wondering what you think the biggest thing impacting Bitcoin's price is. I think, to be honest, the the macro sentiment and uh, I would say more specifically uh, the federal funds rate and the central bank balance sheet. And this is why, again, I, I remain relatively pessimistic for the next couple of months, because if you, if you really kind of go back and see when the Fed expanded its balance sheet um, over over the last decade, really over the last almost two decades, and so but really since 2008, about 15 years, I mean, we really went through a massive expansion of monetary policy. Now, while I don't want to make the argument that we're going to reduce the entire balance sheet, if you really take a look at that expansion from the base money supply being at $4 trillion to $8 trillion, right, in about two, two and a half years, we doubled the money supply. Um, and I know a lot of people scuff and got really used to the idea of the Fed just printing money and thinking, oh, that you know, it's totally fine. Nothing's going to go wrong. But we're starting to see the ramifications of that now through inflation. And so long as that inflation persists to a degree until the Fed really gets down to that 2% target of inflation, I really think people need to understand that that, that is going to persist for a long period of time and it's going to take time to get there. And until we get there, the Fed's going to keep uh, reversing quantitative easing, engaging rather in quantitative tightening, which is where they're dumping mortgage-backed securities, U.S. treasuries, government debt, and essentially they're dumping this on the open market. Back in November, they had the biggest decline of about, I think it was around $130 billion in a single month. That's very different than any kind of QT or quantitative tightening we've seen before. And I think that that's just going to compound and accelerate. I've projected on the channel, the YouTube channel that I run, talking to people about how uh, we expect that that is going to go down from the original, I think, historic highs around, I think it was around nine trillion, um, eight, nine trillion down to around like six to seven trillion dollars. At a minimum, we're moving the secondary wave of liquidity injection that the Fed put in during 2021. Um, but that's, that's one big thing as well. But, uh, you know, I actually wanted to, to hint on one thing, uh, BJ, which is like, you know, towards this question of what's really holding back crypto. I mean, I'm a really big macro trader, so I can go on about the Fed all day long. I can talk about all that stuff. But I got to say, man, I, I'm curious to maybe even, again, get your take on this. I got to tell you, I really feel like while we, we're so confident right now that Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of always just going to be these market leaders. And sure, there was a lot of alternative layer ones that kind of went out the window in the cycle. We weren't really big on promoting many of them or talking about them. I never really was big on Avalanche, never talked about Luna. Um, but I have to say, I think that there's a really ripe opportunity and chance to disrupt the way developers interact with crypto, users interact with crypto, pretty much the entire financial system as a whole interact with crypto. Because I think in its current state, crypto will never be adopted by traditional finance. Uh, I say this as someone who built in DeFi over the last couple of years. Unfortunately, I had to shut down one of my own startups of three years back in uh, 2022. 
Um, and I just, I realized that the way DeFi is right now, which is I think one of the best use cases in crypto and does have potential, the way that you have to build apps now, um, the limits that you have to face, and also the user experience hurdles of using wallets like MetaMask, um, you know, signing transactions, and you know, not having really any kind of digital ID or way to really make these applications palpable for people like Web2 applications. I think these are huge limitations and setbacks that are going to be overcome by new players that come into the space. Yeah, that's pretty interesting stuff. You had a, a lot to to go over there. Um, so yeah, <laughs> but I, I appreciate hearing your your feedback. That's that's really good stuff. Taking a brief pause here to talk about this episode's sponsor, Web3 Antivirus. Phishing scams have been a problem in the Web3 world, with users suffering the loss of assets after signing malicious requests with their crypto wallets. But up-and-coming solutions like Web3 Antivirus aim to help by assisting users in analyzing incoming transaction requests before agreeing to them. And now, back to the show. Next section we want to move into is called Trade Secrets. So basically, tell me about your background, or as much as you're comfortable talking about. Yeah, for sure. I... um. You know, basically, originally with with Cointelegraph, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to do this video series where they they kind of animated my background. And uh, the the simple kind of story, uh, as as short as I can keep it, I started trading back in around like 2011 time. Uh, I was basically it, it was my birthday. I had been studying the markets for months, learning about trading and investing. At first time I went to go trade was actually opening up a joint brokerage account with my my dad. He was kind enough to go take me right after I got out of school, basically going out and getting my account set up. And as early as I could, I started investing and trading in US stocks. I bought you know, emerging industries like solar technology. I bought into uh, other plays as well, like cannabis. I was really eager to kind of catch these emerging trends before they became mainstream and focus on kind of midterm uh, trading uh, when it came to my entries and exits. So a couple months for each trade. And I learned a lot of lessons along the way. But I think for me, what was interesting after a couple of years of making mistakes in equities trading and then eventually making returns and, and coming out net positive, I realized I really liked it. I could make money doing it. But on top of that, I really liked finding transformative technologies. And for my trading journey, when I came into crypto, crypto really just changed everything. It taught me so much more about technical analysis, the emotion of the market, understanding the dynamics of markets underneath what we see when we're just buying some asset with a four-letter symbol or some kind of cryptocurrency or stock, really understanding the dynamics of markets. Uh, and this really, again, helped me kind of ground myself into becoming that macro trader that I started out as. So I like to focus on really, basically what I find after nearly 10 years is, in my opinion, the best way to trade or invest. For me personally, I find that it comes when I have uh, trades that are well thought out or researched, have good price setups, and essentially can take multiple months to play out. I've learned that through day trading, uh, through experience and losing money, uh, day trading is just a losing game. Uh, you know, 95%, roughly speaking, there's a couple of different studies, but generally speaking, 95% of people who day trade will lose money in the end. What makes matters even worse is you got to compare whether or not you would have done better swing trading or long-term investing. And when you start to look at that, I think it starts to get up into the 98% threshold. Really only a couple people make money day trading, historically speaking. So I really like to trade the broader cycles in crypto. I like to sell during overbought periods, buy during those capitulative periods where there's liquidations, people are forced selling, 
you're able to really get good position sizes at uh, really good discounts. And that's the kind of way that I think will not only, uh, you know, basically help you to avoid making a lot of the mistakes in crypto, but on top of that as well, for me, it just helps me keep grounded and allows me to focus on my passion, which is finding where those broader trends are about to play out. Gotcha. That's that's some interesting stuff. So how would you describe your trading strategy? Let's dive into that. Yeah, for sure. Um, th- there's a couple different things I look for. So like, first off, for any kind of asset, I, I have to definitely focus a bit on fundamentals. And fundamentals aren't exactly uh, what people would genuinely usually think. They usually think when I say fundamentals, um, you know, is there revenue behind it? Basically all the kind of t- traditional things you would label in the financial category as fundamentals, uh, you know, revenue or growth projections. More than anything for me, I, I want to know if there's a potential for this market to be able to expand from its current point or any kind of given asset. The next thing I have as well is trying to look at any data metrics, whether it be price, whether it be uh, the cumulative volume delta or market order flow, or understanding you know the backers or investors behind products and understand, is there going to be more outflows or more inflows? If there's more outflows, I'm going to sit on the sidelines. If there looks to be more inflows, this gets really interesting. That means that there's the ability for price to move up because there's more demand than supply. Um, so that for me is, is, is kind of point number one. But the other point as well, outside of talking about the fundamentals for price expansion, uh, are definitely looking at technical analysis. So for me, I like to really look on the weekly and monthly timeframes. You'll never find me <laughs> looking at like the five minute time frame or the 30 minute or hourly chart. I really like zooming out and looking at multiple years or multiple months. And from there, you can really start to see, you know, some longer term accumulation patterns. It's much easier to spot when uh, institutions through either Wyckoff patterns or other similar types of accumulation or distribution patterns are exiting or entering positions. So the longer you zoom out, the better. And if I see those long-term setups of sideways accumulation at a nice discount price with uh, slight signs of uptrend, higher lows and higher highs, that's when I start to get really optimistic. Um, And then I think third, finally, as well, like for me, I care a lot about momentum. I I can't be the only one in the room. I know a lot of people want to feel like uh, they're the only one making a position and they're like, you know, I'm going to buy this position. Three or five years, it's going to be a big thing. I made that mistake back in the day when I was trading with cannabis. You know, I was buying a cannabis penny stock back in the day when I was like a teenager. <laughs> I was like a couple of years ahead of the curb and I ended up buying a low quality stock and I got the sector right. I got the trend right, but I was way too early and I got positioned in the wrong play. And what I found out from that is that if I would have just waited on when the industry really started to trend a little bit, pay a little bit of a premium on it and you know, see the names that are already performing well, I would have done much better. So that's the case, same thing with crypto, same with any asset class. There's no need to rush into things or try to pick bottoms. So I know uh, on our channel, we've got a lot of people who are, you know, they'll see the markets bouncing up here during the bear market for a couple of days and they go, oh my gosh, I got to go long. But in reality, you know, like they, they had things fall over yet again. And we've been sitting in the sidelines, we're patient, we're waiting for that proper entry, and we wait for the right price signals to set up. So this is some of the key things that I follow that play into my broader strategy. My real broader strategy is definitely, it would take more time to talk about, but generally speaking, those are kind of the key things I focus on. Yeah, that's, that's again, that's really interesting stuff. Um, so you mentioned technical analysis. Maybe just walk me through what you look for in your technical analysis. For sure, yeah. So as we talked about earlier, I, I definitely like to look on those expansive timeframes. 
Um, so as I, I mentioned before, I think the accumulation patterns are very interesting. Uh, consecutive support on key indicators like moving averages, preferably the 200, um, 200 period moving average on the weekly time frame or daily time frame. I, I generally want to see support being made on these indicators. I want to see price itself forming reverse like triple bottoms, uh, double bottoms, anything that could signal that, you know, anyone who wanted to get flushed out is out of the market. And uh, I also do like to look for capitulation as well, like so free falling candles for more short term trades or potentially if I really feel that on higher magnitude, like we get a 40, 50% correction in equities or an 85, 90% correction in crypto. Those are the kind of things that I like to look for. I like to look for large percentage declines from top to bottom. Um, and outside of that as well, there's a, there's a really important dynamic to understand too that I, I don't think a lot of traders focus on, which is looking for uh, how prices in, uh, interacting with key indicators, like consistent historical indicators like the 200-day moving average and the 200-week moving average during a bear market and during bull markets. So I, on my channel, I, I've emphasized a lot looking at, say, traditional equities um, or even crypto and how the 200-week moving average used to be this kind of buy-the-dip opportunity for the last decade. Every single time we got drawdowns, if you bought at the 200-week moving average in a couple months, you'd be making money on your position. So it's just like, a, it's a fact and stuff with that, and like with the historical data we have, that was usually what would play out. However, though, this time around, we've been trading well below the 200-week moving average. And this is again to that point about, oh, I see this time we're at a bear market. We're facing resistance at the 200-week moving average. We're maybe not even coming to retest it. So during these periods, I like to look for much larger flushes, capitulation, and that's when I really go long. And again, have that time frame in mind of six to 12 months where this could be uh, you know, eventually a long-term position, one year plus trade, and you can start to make some really substantial returns versus uh, just trying to trade every single move in the space without all the stress that comes with day trading. Gotcha, yeah, thanks for sharing. So how did you learn your style of trading? I know you touched on that a little bit, but maybe dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, to be honest, for me, I, I learned it um, mainly through being self-taught. You know, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of different traders that I admire out there. I've got a really close friend of mine named Bob, who who's been a phenomenal trader. He's traded back in dot-com bubble. I also followed individuals like Chris Catcher, uh, who worked with uh, Mark Minaveni, like uh, or so actually he worked with uh, Kevin O'Neill, and also Mark Minaveni is another really great trader. All these guys have have differences in their style of trading. But for me, what I really appreciate is their ability to really not chase trades and be able to focus on the macro perspective. I think the thing that defines a great trader is someone who realizes that all they have to do to outpace the broader market is make a couple trades every year that are focused on big bets with great reward to risk ratios. So if I can get, for example, if I just take four trades in a year, if I really take my time to find four quality plays in the year, and I can get two out of four, maybe three out of four of those right, I can make astronomical returns versus someone who's trying to day trade and use leverage and make a 5% return in one day and is going to lose 10%. Uh, when you really have these great risk to reward plays, you know what you're adjusted risk is, you know, you can lose, for example, with a stop of 10%, you know, you can lose 10%. Uh, but on top of that as well, if you have take profits that are three, five times bigger than that, you can really make some astronomical returns if you hit those levels. 
Um, that again, really only can happen in such a short period of time in crypto. But again, my profit targets would just be shorter in equity play. Still, you can make really great returns that outpace the broader market. But it has to do again with uh, finding those kind of catalyst positions. There's also uh, Stanley Druckenmiller. Uh, he, he, you know, he's talked, for example, about some of his fame trades where he went long. Uh, I think either treasuries, treasury yields, back uh, back during the seventies or a different period of time. And again, it's just these kind of like insightful trades when you can really zoom out. You don't care about chasing every great opportunity that's thrown at you, and just focus again on kind of seeing like, hey, okay, look, like you know, there's a lot of talk about energy transformation. Energy is getting more expensive. Solar and uranium look quite interesting to me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and dive in, check what the charts are saying. The charts are showing me signs of an uptrend or signs of accumulation. I might get long. Um, if I see that the, you know, kind of the people are continuously paying a higher PE multiple, that gets me excited. People are getting excited about these industries and it's reflecting in price and the valuations. So um, I like to ride into that string. And uh, again, just overall, focus on making very few key trades. If you can ride with the market, if you can listen to what price is telling you, uh, and just continuously, like by spending uh, tons and tons of time, I think the the analogy everyone uses is you got to spend 10,000 hours doing something to be an expert. I think that, of course, it's a generalization. But once you've seen, say, 10,000, 20,000 charts, you start to be able to look at price and be like, oh, yeah, this is going to start moving up or this is going to start moving down, especially when you're looking at the longer term timeframes. And that's why again, I keep coming back to that. The more you can discipline yourself to, to keep to the daily, weekly, and monthly timeframes, the more profitable you're going to be, uh, in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for your, your take on that and your, your input. Last question in this segment. I just wanted to know about psychology and your trading. Yeah, man, it's, it, it's, a, it's a big topic. Um, I would say for, for me, when it comes to psychology, my train, in my trading style, I rarely will use psychology if I'm doing more structured short-term trades. Those usually have very like well-defined risk-reward profiles. So that's again, as we talked about a little bit earlier, using stop losses, having take-profit levels, not getting you know sidelined about thinking it's hit my take-profit level, but maybe it could go higher. Like no, I, when I do those shorter-term trades, I really try to stick discipline to using stop losses and uh, using take profits. Or if you're trading options or something more volatile, kind of accepting that the position you build, like it's kind of like, oh, look, I know this can maybe do a three or four X, but it also could go to nothing. Um, yeah, you know, knowing that, you know, whatever I put up, I could lose that. So I always have those pretty, pretty well-defined from the beginning. When it comes to those longer term swing trades that make up the majority of my liquidity uh, and also my, my attention and focus, uh, I would say for those, I really like to buy things when no one's listening. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's pretty cool. Like, BJ, we're here right now. We're chatting. You know, Bitcoin's sitting around, I think, around like 17300 bucks, And, you know, it could possibly go lower. Um, you know, the more and more quiet we are and the more price is declining and the less euphoria there is in an asset class. But I can figure out if it has the potential and stuff to be able to move higher through its fundamentals, if there's exciting things being built in that space, there is a quiet, silent minority that's continuing to build and add value, um, then I, I'm really keen to watch it, especially if price is saying the signs that it's bottomed. But on the other end of the stick, when it comes to taking profits, I mean, I think if it's interesting, like if we really look back at 2021, 
I think the one thing I really messed up on as a trader is I ignored one of these key principles. I got a little bit sidelined by all the euphoria, like a lot of people did, I think. But in 2017, you know, when we had our YouTube channel back then, we've been covering crypto as far back as 2017. During that period of time in November, December, uh, we started to sell Bitcoin at around 10,000 when we really had that parabolic blow off top. We were hitting big even levels where people think it's a new paradigm shift. You started to have Bitcoin futures trading. You had everyone and their grandma talking about crypto. So for me, I really like to to see mania and euphoria as kind of my alarm signal to start slowly lowering my exposure, locking in profits and uh, getting ready for the tax season to, to pay on those gains and stuff like versus, you know, during this period of time. Now, I wouldn't say if, if people had positions now, like at least for myself, I have some crypto positions I'm still holding. I'm going to hold those for the next couple of years because I think that the risk adjusted return is best just to hold it. Um, but on top of that, for me, like I have my liquidity mainly on the sidelines now. And once I really, once the room gets quiet enough, once I start seeing price just base out and people are uninterested in it, that's when I want to strike. So I, I definitely use that market psychology, I think, uh, to my advantage. I'm fi- figuring out when I want to buy and sell. I think any, any good trader will do that to some degree, whether they're looking on the shorter term or longer term timeframes. Awesome. Yeah, that was that was great. Thank you. So let's dive into the last segment here, which is the next bull run. Basically, what are you looking for that would signal to you that Bitcoin may have bottomed? I think for for me, and, and that's again, that's actually a really good question because so many people folks, they usually will ask like, what's the absolute number you think it's going to bottom out? And I think that no one's got the crystal ball to find that answer. But um, for me, I'm looking at a bare minimum for some major kind of vertical move or on the other end of the stick, a, what we typically find, which is the long-term accumulation pattern. Uh, I think there will be some of those vertical bump-ups uh, that, again, could be bear market rallies where we rally up for a bit, but we still set in a lower significant high. We face resistance at the 200-day moving average, and then we roll back over. What I care most about is when price has had a capitulative sell-off, and then for a preceding few months to a year, we push sideways. And there's a big reason for this, because... It's not just a question of uh, the price action for Bitcoin. Right? During those accumulation patterns, the reason they're called accumulation patterns or consolidation patterns is there's a changing of hands where new parties or new investors come in at a certain price range and they're really starting to build those sizable positions slowly but steadily. They don't want to buy too quick because then price moves up if they engage in too much market buying. But I think that's, that's one dynamic we need to consider. But I think the other one we need to consider as well is when we, we really have a vision for where Bitcoin is going to be as an asset. There is a ton of things working against Bitcoin. I mean, if FTX and Celsius and all this stuff wasn't bad enough, the wave of regulations that are going to come over the next couple of years, uh, the amount of miners, the Bitcoin hash rate is, is right up near its all-time high, not too far off. And that can't persist in this environment, mathematically speaking, for very long because a lot of these miners are not producing free electricity. They have electrical costs and therefore they're going to be facing bankruptcy, restructuring. That's going to lead to sell side pressure for Bitcoin. And then also as well, there's a lot of junk out there in the altcoin space like there was during the dot-com bubble. It's not an insult to crypto, similar to how IPOs you know, collapsing, right? And some of them being outright scams at the end of the day. I didn't mean that the internet had no value. It's just that we've got to go through this restructuring period. We have to figure out the ultimate question, which is how is crypto really going to look in the next couple of years? 
Uh, one thing, and this is again, just for disclosure purposes, they are one of our partners on the channel, but we really only work with partner projects that we like. And one of them that I think is really exciting is Radix, uh, Radix DLT. I've known the project since 2018. So they've been around the block for some time in crypto. One of the things I like about them though, is that they've really sat down and they chatted with the people who really make crypto what it is, developers. And they asked them for the past two years, what is it that you're missing when you develop a decentralized application? What are you missing when it comes to the developer experience around crypto? And it's amazing how much they've been able to take that feedback and from a protocol level, completely rethink the way developers interact with crypto, users, the whole shebang. And I think that that is what's going to allow us to hopefully, whether it's Radix or another player, I'm not here to just promote them. I think there's a ton of interesting layer one protocols that have been building behind the scenes that are, are less market savvy and are much more focused, marketing savvy and much more focused on development that are going to really come in and challenge Ethereum. Because if you can take Uniswap, an application that was one of the few really exciting applications in crypto that originally took 15,000, uh, 10 to 15,000 lines of code to develop and shrink that down to maybe a couple hundred lines of code without the smart contract exploits. And you also know as a user when you're engaging with it, what tokens you're swapping rather than signing some random meta MetaMask transaction. That's the kind of stuff that's going to fix crypto. And until we fix that, we sure as hell aren't going to be bringing our mom and dad into using crypto. And we certainly aren't going to be bringing the financial uh, world of Wall Street uh, and traditional uh, enterprise finance into crypto. And that's what's really going to be able to make crypto a multi-trillion dollar asset class or you know, something that slowly goes into the night and remains as it is today. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense too. So if, because nothing is a sure thing, we have another crypto bull run, what are you looking for that would tell you that maybe the market has changed into a bull run? Got it. Yeah, th that's a fair point. I guess I should be a bit more specific. I would say when when you get, uh, like what, what I saw in the last bull market, and this was true, I think, for a lot of other bull markets, after that accumulation pattern, if you get a solid double-digit green day on Bitcoin's price, that's when I get excited. And I know a lot of people are like, oh man, the price went up 20% or 15%. For me, I'm buying there. I'd much rather pay the premium because I know with those kind of major breakout days, uh, why they happen and why they're so significant is because they happen when someone is afraid that they're not going to get their order filled, like an institutional investor. So and remember, as we were talking about that accumulation pattern, just to visualize it after you've had really the bear market drawdown, you push sideways. This happened in 2015, it happened in uh, 2019 as well. When you are pushing sideways and then immediately get this you know, 10, 20% pump or move in Bitcoin's price, the reason that that's happening is because they no longer feel they can get their bids filled. Usually they're doing that bid uh, orders on the order book, waiting for people to sell into their requested orders. Um, but when they market order buy, that's what causes this dramatic slippage. And uh, that was really the catalyst. I remember it on April 1st or April 2nd of 2019. It was the catalyst for the next bull market. And Bitcoin rallied all the way to 14K and went back to 3,700. And then it went all the, all the way up to uh, 69,000 at the peak of the bull market. So look for that kind of catalyst breakout. And when everyone is thinking, oh my gosh, it's, you know, it's overbought now or too pricey, I don't want to buy it that's the time I genuinely would be getting optimistic, just me personally. Gotcha. So how will you look to try and figure out the timeline of the next bull run? I think looking at 
prior cycles have definitely brought some value. Uh, the last cycle was was quite different uh, from the others in the the fact that it was quite short. Um, now that we know where the high was, I think that it's not so much a, a factor of figuring out the timeline for the next bull market. It's because we don't know when that bear market bottom will be. I think a, a, a lot of people are really, I think, curious at the end of the day about when do we really know uh, things are starting to get overvalued. And I think the more vertical you start moving on uh, the logarithmic chart uh, versus the prior weeks and months, and the more you hear about crypto in the headlines, and the more you're feeling uh, like an optimism to buy as a trader and investor, I've learned to lean into the intuition to, to go on the other side of the trade. But I think, you know, to be honest, like most crypto bull markets, I'm not a big believer in the, the four-year cycle theory. I have been a believer in this idea of expanding cycles to some degree, even though that didn't play out in the last cycle. And the reason why is because as, as Bitcoin becomes uh, a more well-known asset, if we do have another bull market and really go to new all-time highs, I think it's going to be much more difficult to get there um, because of the fact that we don't have the Fed's quantitative easing. I don't think we will for a long period of time. And on top of that, uh, even if you did have it, the to go from, say, 5K to 10K in Bitcoin's price versus 50K to 100K, it's a totally different, uh, totally different ballgame. Both of them are 2Xs in valuation or 100% moves. But even considering that, we need to talk about the liquidity demand to get us from those kind of exacerbated valuations. You know, going from the market cap of $50,000 Bitcoin to 100000 is a very difficult task. It takes a lot more liquidity than, say, the move from 5 to 10 k So I think we really need to think about who, who are those buyers going to be. And that's why I, I would think that the next bull market is going to be quite long. Uh, but I think a lot of the historic metrics we have to determine how long bull markets will be unfortunately, just aren't going to be valuable uh, in this next cycle. So I much more rather try to listen to what price is telling me on when I should enter and when I should exit. When is no one talking about it? When is everyone at max capitulation? And have we seen price push sideways? Do we get that pop-up? I'm interested, I'm in. And then uh, you know, a year, two years out, could be three years um, when crypto is just getting to absorbent levels, price is starting to stall. Um, set in lower highs and lower lows, that's when I get out. And you can still, you don't have to time up the bottom or top exactly, but you can make some phenomenal returns. And in many cases, um, you know, still have it as being a long-term trade, which is beneficial for tax reasons, at least in the U.S. Gotcha. So that about wraps it up. Um, thank you so much, Nicholas, for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. BJ, thank you so much, man. It was really nice getting to catch up and, uh, yeah, man, I, I, we'll, we'll survive through this winter. It'll be interesting to see how things go. And thanks for having me on, man. All right. Thanks so much. This podcast episode was brought to you thanks to Cointelegraph's partner, Web3 Antivirus. Thanks for tuning in to Crypto Trading Secrets presented by Cointelegraph. We'll catch you next time.